Today is the second part of our series called Holy Spirit Series. So would you turn to the person next to you and say, Holy Spirit. That's right. They're not the Holy Spirit, but it was fun to say it to them anyway and make them feel like that. So when we, last week uh, in the uh, part one, and if you didn't, if you weren't here last week, you really need to go back and listen to that online or watch the video footage of that, of that teaching. And what we were teaching about with the Holy Spirit series starting last week was um, who, who is the Holy Spirit? What's his name? And, and a lot of times we hear Holy Ghost out of King James, Holy Spirit. And we went back and we looked at his name in the original Greek and Hebrew. And his name in the original Greek and Hebrew really trans out, uh, trans, trans translates out the wind or the breath of God, the breath of God. And that we see that the Holy Spirit is uh, the third person in the Godhead. Or, or we use the term Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we were uh, last week I was just challenging you to recognize um, that you and I need the breath of God in us. We need God's presence. Do you believe that? Say yes. Uh, good. That, you must have been here last week. All right. And it was, it was really magnificent. And this week we're going to look at this word Pentecost. We're going to look at this word Pentecost. Now each and every one of us have uh, kind of a, a different background. All of us have a different normal. What we think is normal. Like, for example, um, what I think is the right way and is normal to drive. When I'm in India, I lose my mind. Because in India, their normal is to honk the horn the whole time. And in India and in Africa and places that I go, there are no lines that separate us. It's where whoever can get in the space. And in, and in South America, there is not a red light or a stop sign. It's whoever can get in that space first. And so that's their norm. And so uh, our norm, you know, may be a little different. And where, how you grew up and how you uh, came, uh, different churches that we all came from, we have a different what we think is normal and what we think is abnormal. And I want to challenge a little bit of that today. And let me just, let's just get, we all have different backgrounds. How many of you guys uh, grew up uh, Baptist? How many of you guys grew up Baptist or had a Baptist? That was my wife. My wife and my in-laws, they were Baptists. How many Church of Christ? I was Church of Christ. Anybody come out of Church of Christ? All right. How about the Catholic? Anybody come out of Catholic? There you go. There you go. What about Methodist? Anybody Methodist? Or how about Presbyterian? Okay, there you go. How many of you guys uh, charismatic? Go ahead and lift both hands. You're used to it. There you go. All right. How about, um, how about you just were lost and wicked, man? You just like, yeah, there you go. You probably had the best, you probably had the best Christian in the room, actually. You don't have a bunch of baggage. Uh, with that being said, I thought I, would, I wanted to have a little fun with this. You know, somebody sent me this uh, sometime back. And uh, just kind of um, uh, religious light, light bulb jokes is what we'll call this, all right? Uh, how many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, ten. One to change it, and the other nine is to pray against the spirit of darkness in Jesus' name. <laughs> how many Episcopalians uh, does it take to change out a light bulb? Ten, one to actually change out the light bulb, and nine to say how much they like the old one and can't believe we're changing it. Watch yourself. How many Church of Christ folks does it take to change out a light bulb? Uh, five, one to change the bulb, and four to serve refreshments afterwards, because this is a great event. <clears throat> uh, how many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Four, one to lay hands on it, two to catch it as it falls, and one to cover over with a purity cloth as it lays there on the ground. Hey, watch yourself. Watch yourself. <laughs> Here you go. How about this one? How many Southern Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? 16 million. However, they are divided over whether changing the bulb is a fundamental need or not. <laughs> How many Roman Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> None, because they believe in candles only. <laughs> Watch yourself. Uh, <laughs> How many Mormons does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, five, one to change the bulb and the four wives to tell him how he should have done it. <laughs> Watch this. Lord, I just want to repent right now. Jesus, bless the pygmies. All right. Um, how, many, <laughs> how many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Change the light bulb. All, our family donated that light bulb in 1927, and no one can change it without committee approval. Watch this. Uh, watch this. Uh, how about this one? You're not going to like this one either. I'm going to tell you that now. How many Nazarenes does it take to change the light bulb? Six. One woman to replace the bulb and five men to sit around talking about whether or not it's right for them to change the light bulb. All right. How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? What's a light bulb? <laughs> and last and final, a little bit, uh, a little different here. How many televangelists does it take to change a light bulb? One. But for this message of hope to continue on, each and every one of you need to make your donation right now of 1995. Send it to the P.O. Box. <laughs> Give the Lord a hand for that. <laughs> Silly, I know, but it does kind of beg the point that each and every one of us 
have some backdrop on what we think about certain things. Each and every one of us have a concept of what the Holy Spirit is or who he is and how that is to interact in our life based on maybe how we were raised, based on some experiences that we have, based on some YouTube video or some, bad, uh, some person who had a horrible experience relaying that to us before we were even Christians. And with all that being said, that is awesome that we have these backdrops. But what I'd like to do with this whole series is take you into what the Word of God says. I'd like you to understand the Holy Spirit not because of your backdrop, not because of your former normal or what you thought was abnormal, but I'd like you to understand who he is based on who God said he is, based on what the word of God says he is, and based on the experiences out of the Holy Scripture. So with that being said, let's jump into our key scripture passage today. We're going to start in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1 through 4 because today we're looking at Pentecost. We're looking at that term, we're looking at that verbiage, and kind of see the backdrop of what that was. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, is one of the most noteworthy experiences of Pentecost. And look at verse 1, it says it like this, and when the day of Pentecost came. They were all together in one place. Now, these are the disciples of Jesus. Jesus has already died, resurrected, and then had ascended to heaven. And now they're at Pentecost in Jerusalem. They're at this feast. And it says, and suddenly, verse 2, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Powerful experience amazing uh, piece of what happened in our history as Christians and as believers. But what gets caught up in a lot of people's grill, what a lot of people get grinded into, the, in, in, into their daily life of misunderstanding is this moment of Pentecost and the interaction with the Holy Spirit. So with that being said, let's dive in. What is Pentecost? What is it? Well, Pentecost is one of three major holidays for Jewish people, for the Jews. It's one of three major holidays, or feasts. In, in scriptures, you'll hear it called feasts. The Feast of Pentecost, the, uh, the Passover feast many times. But it's a holiday. Now, we have a few major holidays here in the United States. Uh, we, cele- we celebrate 4th of July because it was our, you know, our, our, our time of independence. We celebrate, we, we celebrate uh, what we're doing this weekend, you know, Memorial Day, remembering those who died to keep our nation safe and strong. We have these moments. And the reason why we celebrate them every year, just like what God instituted with the Jews, was so they would remember so that their children's, 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 children would remember what happened scores and scores of years ago. Well, think about it with the Jews, because they have thousands and thousands of years of history. So you have thousands and thousands of years of this interaction of remembering what God did. So let's start with the first of the three. Now, there are seven feasts, but there are three majors. We'll call them three majors. Kind of like we have our three majors, you know, kind of like our, you know, our Christmas, our Fourth of July, and our Thanksgiving, you know, where the pilgrims, and, and we remember that we, you know, that, that, that we had a hard time surviving uh, as the colonies came over and that the Indians helped us and the, or the Native Americans helped us and that whole thing worked out. And we call it Thanksgiving. We celebrate that God was there for us and used the Native Americans. Americans to save our lives or save the colonists' lives. And so that's why we were able to establish. And so we have these feasts. Let's look at the three big ones here in Scripture and kind of connect them back to this moment in Acts chapter 2, the Passover. So with that being said, the first one is the feast or the holiday of the Passover. The Passover. Now let me explain to you the Passover, what had transpired. The Passover was started as a result, um, backing all the way up to the book of Exodus. If you'll remember, some of you know the storyline. But God's people were the Jews. God picked them. The world had become so wicked and so corrupt, nobody loved God. And so God found one man, his name was Abraham, and he said, you love me. And Abraham says, I do, and I'll serve you. So God made a covenant with Abraham. He said, okay, we got a pact. You and every one of your children, 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 great, will be my people. And I'll teach you how to serve me. And so that transpired into what we call the Israelites or the Israeli nation or the Jews. That's who they are. They're Abraham's seed. They're his great, 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 great grandchildren all the way down. That's what Jews are. And as a result, as time went on, they began to get, you know, walk away from God, go back to God. And so what happened was they were basically enslaved by the Egyptians. Come on, you saw the movie. Come on, Disney did a great version of it too. And so, you know, they were enslaved by the Egyptians and they, and they built, you know, the pyramid, uh, uh, pyramids for them and things like that, you know. And as we look back on it, it was just a real, I think it was about a 400-year to four, four or 500-year period where they were slaves to, uh, uh, to the Egyptians. And so they began to cry out, God, please deliver us. And he sent them a deliverer. Anybody know his name? His name is? Good job. His name was Moses. 
And, uh, and so Moses, you know, he, he goes back to Pharaoh and he says, God says, let his people go. Let the Jewish people go. And Pharaoh says, no, no, no. And he says, yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. And so he had this little back and forth. And he said, okay, well, God says he's going to send some plagues up on this place. And so if you'll go back and you can study, there were 10 plagues. And, uh, and the reason why there were 10 plagues is because the, this bad thing would happen. One of them was like all the water turned in the whole, uh, and the whole nation turned to blood. That's kind of creepy. Imagine going to your refrigerator, blah, blah, blah. Oh, no, gross. Imagine taking a shower. Oh, gross. All the rivers, gross. And so <clears throat> and Pharaoh said, okay, okay, okay. Just tell your God to turn it back right. And I, I'll let him go. And then he did that 10 times, back and forth, back and forth. He'd say, I'm going to let him go. And then he wouldn't. So then God would send another plague. I mean, all the way to frogs everywhere. I mean, just nasty stuff. It's really fun storyline if you're the one not having it done against you. Anyway, so it gets down to the last one, number 10. And, and you know, this whole thing is building because Pharaoh has hardened his heart against the Lord. And it comes down to the 10th one. And the last one is this. God says, okay, buddy, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Since you won't listen and you won't let my people go, I'm going to kill every firstborn. And the entire Egyptian nation, everyone, I'm going to die. I'm going to, tonight, I'm going to send a death angel and just slaughter everyone who's firstborn. How many of you guys are the oldest in your family? You're the firstborn. See, you've been dead. I just want to point that out. And he says to the Israelites, he says to his people, he says, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a little lamb. I want you to cut its throat, bleed it out, take the blood, and put it over the doorpost, around the door on the side post and over the top of the door. And when the death angel passes, he'll see that that's a Jewish house who belongs to me. And the blood will be the marker to pass over and not to kill those in that home. Can you imagine that night? As all across, millions and millions of people are crying out in the night. As all of a sudden, the husband goes, oh, and he dies. They go and they hear the, the child scream in the back bedroom. They go in there and that child is dead. Maybe even there's this whole creepy, you know, presence of a death angel comes in and you see it and then it kills your kid. Or Can you imagine that whole thing? But as it got to the Jewish homes and he saw the blood over the doorpost, he passed over. And so that's where they got Passover. And so God said from this point forward, after they had left Egypt, he said, I want you to start a national holiday once a year to celebrate Passover. And there's a couple key things, a couple little significant things. I want you to have a meal. I want you to remember what had happened there in Egypt when the death angel passed over. It's got all kinds of symbolism. But there are a couple key pieces that I want you to see, a couple significant regulations for observing Passover. That was kind of cool, and I want to kind of connect you to them. First and foremost, at 9 a.m. on that Friday, the start of Passover, or the third hour, you're to sacrifice the lamb. So you're supposed to do that at the third hour, which is 9 a.m. Now, you've got to understand uh, Jewish way of thinking and Jewish way of time. They, they didn't have, uh, they didn't have uh, 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 down to the minute. In fact, in Jesus' time, they only, they only, the, the hour was their smallest unit of time measurement. They didn't have minutes and seconds and things like that. And most people during Jesus' time didn't even have a sundial. So when they would, so, so the Jewish concept of the third hour was kind of 9 a.m., if you will, to noon. That would be kind of like third hour, even though it would be, you know, three, four, or five. It, it was kind of this whole, they would consider that whole time frame for about those three-hour period as the third hour, if you will. And so with that being said, during that, at, at about 9 a.m., you're to kill that lamb. You're to kill that lamb and start the process of making the meal ready So, because all, all your family's going to gather. Uh, because before, uh, before the temples were built, they would all do this in their homes. And so then what was supposed to happen at 3 p.m. or at the ninth hour, at the ninth hour, the, uh, the lamb had been prepared. And somewhere during that ninth hour was to begin to put in the oven, total big uh, in the oven, shoved into. Remember what type of baking uh, things they have? Have you ever seen the, uh, the big uh, the, the pizza ovens that they do with the, made out of clay and that kind of? That's the kind of concept. So you got this big dark area. They put that in, open, do a fire in the bottom of it, and then stick that meat down in there. And then, and then it was to you know kind of when it finished cooking, then the family used to get around. They had some other special things that had real meaning. They were supposed to have bitter herbs to remind them of how bad the captivity was. That they never want to go back to being disobedient to the Lord. And they had some unleavened bread pieces. Well, look at fifteen hundred years later. Fifteen hundred years later, what we call Good Friday was the Passover festival or feast again, their national holiday, some 1,500 years later. And look at Jesus Christ becomes the final sacrificial lamb for our sins. And he's hung on a cross. I'd like to point out to you that Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. at the third hour. 
Mark 15 and verse 25 tells us. Then, according to the book of Mark, at 3 p.m. or the ninth hour, he gave up his breath. He died. And then in that time frame of that ninth hour, they took his body down and put him in a cave. See, God the Father had pre-planned all of this in advance. And so the, over the 1,000, 1,500 years that had transpired, every, every year during that Passover, every year remembering the lamb that was killed for the doorpost to be covered with blood, all of a sudden it came to this moment 2,000 years ago where the King of kings and the Lord of lords was murdered on our behalf. His blood shed out. Come on, somebody. And now as believers, that blood covers our doorpost, the house of who we are. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see Come on, somebody. He doesn't see someone who's going to spend death and destruction forever in eternity in hell. But he sees those that are his, his sons and daughters, that now will spend eternity in life with him in heaven. Are you with me? Say yes. He was, Jesus was, the final Passover lamb. It was done once and for all. Doesn't need to continue being done. Done once and for all. Because their momentary release of sin with their Passover came to a final cover of sin with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And then after Passover, their second big, of the three big ones, their second big festival, or second big, you know, holiday, if you will, was 50 days later, and it was called Pentecost. Pentecost. So after uh, Pharaoh, you know, says, all right, go, leave, leave Egypt. And so they left. And what happens is Pentecost, or the 50-day later mark, the children of Israel find themselves, they're by the Red Sea, they've got Mount Sinai to their side of them, they're kind of down in this valley area, and there, some scholars believe up to two million of them, or even potentially more. But let's just round it around the two million. All these people, they've been living in Egypt, they have been slaves, they have slave mentality. They have, they have slave concepts. Not only that, but they've not served God for hundreds of years. What they've done is serve the gods of Egypt, where they sacrifice their babies to these fake pagan gods, where they had sexual orgies and called that spiritualism in these temples, where they basically invoked demons into their life. And so God says, hey, Moses, call them all together. I want to meet with my people. He says, but don't let them touch the mountain. Get them all at the base of the mountain. Don't let them touch it because I'm about to come down. And when I come down, my glory will be so strong and so powerful that because of their paganness, because of their weakness, if they even touch it, it's going to kill them. Don't let them touch them, but gather them all at the base of the mountain. So Moses does. And the Bible says in that passage in the book of Exodus, that as God comes down, look what he comes down with. And just kind of point this out in Exodus chapter 19. It says, a cloud descended with a loud noise and fire in Exodus chapter 19. God comes down, and it's like, and the people are like, as millions of people back away from the mountain as God comes down, his presence in a smoke and a cloud, his presence full of fire and thunder. And the people are like, whoa, no, we can't be close to this God. He will kill us. But they recognize their humanity. They recognize his power. And they kind of back away. And so God calls Moses up to himself. And he calls Moses up the mountain. And there on the mountain, guess what he gives Moses? Anybody know? The law, the Ten Commandments, and much more. And God begins to write it on stone. Can you imagine? You're hanging out with God, and he says, Moses, this is what I want to do. And all of a sudden, in the side of the concrete, zzzz. I mean, I mean, we get that because we have computers, and you know, we got all these sci-fi movies. But can you imagine thousands of years ago? And all of a sudden, just the rock just starts, letters start being chiseled out. And then, and as Moses is receiving the law, you can understand what the law was for. The law was because they had been so pagan, they had no semblance of who God was or who he wanted them to be. So he had to set for them a law. This is right. This is wrong. This is not right. This is right. This is who I am. This is my nature. Do this. If you do this, then I will do this. I will protect. You cannot do this. This is not me. This is not my way. And he writes them the law. Meanwhile, while Moses is up on the mountain, guess what happens? The people all get like, hey, he's, I don't know, we don't know what's going to happen to this guy. So because of their pagan background, because of their way of thinking, they begin to dance around the fire. Fire, they, hey, they start doing all that. And then they build themselves a golden calf to worship. And they start worshiping this golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain. Come on, you saw the movie with these Ten Commandments. He's like, 
you got it. And he cracks him, you know, he destroys him. And, and then he goes about smacking Boutte. I mean, he just gets ticked off. And he says, if you're for God, come over here with me. Now, meanwhile, the people have gone crazy. They're, they're pillaging each other. They're raping each other. There's a whole group of them that are just, just taking lead on being wicked. And Moses says, come to me, anybody who wants to serve God, who will stand for God. And basically, the Levites, if you will, come to him. And he gives them a sword. He says, you go through and you kill everybody who's being vile and wicked. Kill them. Brothers, sisters, children, kill them. Be done with it. And they do. And guess how many were killed in that day? 3,000. 3,000. So now let's advance some 1,500 years later. Jesus has died. He's the Passover lamb. 50 days after the Passover, Jesus has told his disciples, he's died, he's resurrected. And over that time of resurrection, he appeared to more than 500 people. And then there at the 40-day mark, Jesus' resurrection, he tells them, go and wait. Go wait in Jerusalem for the gift, the gift my Father has promised. For he will send you the comforter. So they are all together. What was our opening passage that we read? On the day of Pentecost... They were all together. Scholars love to argue about, was it an upper room? Was it not an upper room? Was it just a little thing like that? We were in Israel a couple times. They were like, it wasn't an upper room. Yes, it was. It was. I, I like to use the upper room because it just sounds cool that they were up high. So they're all in the upper room, about 120 of them. And guess what happens? We already read it, but let me give you a couple of other significant pieces. First off, a cloud and the sound of fire came down. Book of Acts, chapter 2. Give that to him on the screen, please. It says, Holy Spirit is poured out in the upper room. Acts 2. There you go. And it says, with a, cloud, a loud sound and fire. That significantly happened. And then in that moment, God did something different. He didn't write his word on tablets of stone. He wrote it on their hearts. He wrote his law on their hearts. Those people that were there. And then guess what happened? Peter steps up and he preaches. Does anybody know how many get saved? 3,000 get saved. God took what had happened 1,500 years ago, and he redeemed it in this moment. So when people say, you believe that Pentecostal stuff? You say, are you talking about the festival or the feast? Are you talking about the moment in the book of Acts chapter 2 on that day of Pentecost, on that Jewish holiday where God poured out his spirit, came down off the mountain, released the Holy Ghost on the people, and all of a sudden something supernatural happened? Yeah, I believe that is in the Bible, don't you? Now, if you're talking about wearing extra makeup and wearing no makeup and putting my hair in a bun, no, I don't believe in that. But what I do believe in, come on, I'm sorry, I offended somebody, I didn't mean to do that. But what the Word of God says is that in that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came down upon the people, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and prayed with other tongues and prophesied, and they went out in great boldness and power. See, you've got to understand something. In the Old Testament, what would happen was the Holy Spirit would come down and he would rest upon men and women. And they'd do supernatural things. He'd come upon the prophets and they would prophesy. And then the Bible says he would release off of them. He'd go back to heaven, basically. You'd see him. He'd come down on Samson. And Samson would do these crazy feats of strength and rip the doors off the city gates. Ah! And then he'd come back, just lift right off of him, be a normal everyday dude. Well, here in the book of Acts, chapter 2, the Holy Spirit doesn't come and then lift away. He comes and he stays. And he stays in the life of those who ask him to come and live and abide in them. At the day of Pentecost, these people all of a sudden were filled with the Spirit of God. The power of God began to surge through them. And no longer, no longer was it just for the special prophets and the little Samsons. But now every little Jewish boy and girl had an understanding of the prophecy in, of Joel chapter 2. And my spirit will rest upon all, all. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams. You've got to understand that was a significant shift. Why? Because only... Only the special ones got to move in God's power throughout the Old Testament. Now, the promised gift for anyone, all men, all women, can have the power of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit living and abiding in us, empowering us to transform this world and empowering us to live the way Jesus intended us to live. I want to tell you something. You are crazy if you think that you can be good in and of yourself. That's why God sent us his Holy Spirit to live and abide in us. I taught you last week. Maybe in kids' church back in the day, someone told you, who lives inside of you, buddy? Who lives inside of you? Jesus lives inside of my heart. No, that's not true. Jesus came in the form of a man, was crucified, died, resurrected, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. His Holy Spirit was sent to live and abide in us. We're supposed to have fellowship, as we taught you last week, with the Spirit of God. 
Spirit of the Lord is supposed to live in a body. So that's why some of you say, you know what? I want, I try to serve God. I just can't do it. I can't do it. Of course you can't. Thank you, finally. Well, good job. You figured it out. You can't do it. You can't, listen, I cannot drive down that highway with people cutting me off, acting like a fool, and not want to stab somebody. In my own self, I can't do that. Listen, there are people who have been molested and raped in this room. They cannot forgive in and of their own self. They, what was done to them was wrong. Who gives them the power to do that? Only the Holy Spirit. Live and abide in us. The power. So the whole goal of the Holy Spirit coming into mind in your life was empowerment. So the first big festival or holiday was Passover. The second one, 50 days later, was Pentecost. Then there was a third one that was one of their majors, and that was the feast or the tabernacle, the holiday of the tabernacles. And the tabernacle was pretty cool and pretty significant because it happened later in the year at harvest time. And in that, they were supposed to celebrate after they had come down off the mountain and, and Moses fixed them all and got them another group of Ten Commandments and the law and all that. Then they went down through the wilderness for 40 years because of the rebellious, rebelliousness of their heart. And they lived from tent to tent to tent to tent on their way to their promised land. On their way to their promised land. They lived in tents on their way to their promised land. And this festival, every year, was to be remembered during harvest time. As they're bringing in the harvest. As all of a sudden God is blessing the work of their hand. And they're bringing in the harvest to remember, you used to live in tents. You were out in the wilderness, lost and undone. But I guided you through all the way, come on somebody, to your promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, the land of prosperity. Friend, can I remind you of something? That's the stage that we're living in now. There is great harvest upon the world today. You and I are living in these tents made out of clay, made out of flesh, but we are on our way to a promised land, a land that's been promised to us as believers where there'll be no more tears. Come on, he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more backbiting and stabbing and hurting and all that. It'll all be wiped away and we will live in eternity with Jesus Christ where streets are made of gold, where there's everything, every peace place that you need to walk in is never imaginable. All the joy and the excitement. We'll live there in our promised land forever and ever and ever. And so when they were to celebrate the tabernacle, they were to remember all the great things that God had done, that he had gotten them from the life of being intense into their promised land, and they were supposed to remember that it is always is going to happen during harvest time. Can I explain something to you? Right now on the earth today, since 2000, from 2000 to 2018, more people have come to know Jesus more people have come to know Jesus in that 18 years than has ever happened, totally combined in the 2,000 years before. We are in great harvest. You may not be able to grasp it. You may not be able to see it, but it is happening in real time. The nations of the world, God is bringing in the great harvest, but he needs some great harvesters. So these great three big holidays, God the whole time had a great symbolism happening. A great symbol. And that he would take these holidays... So for a Jewish person, it's no big deal. When the day of Pentecost came and the Spirit of the Lord fell on all of us, they were like, oh, that's like with the Moses thing on the mountain. We don't have that holiday. We're like, I don't know. day of Pentecost doesn't mean nothing to me. I don't know what that means. The Passover for us is like, "Eh, I don't really get it. But for a Jewish person, again, Jesus was a Jew. The gospel came to the Jews first. You understand this. So for them, it was like, so, though Pentecost may mean something now, and your verbiage, you know, 2,000 years later, some of you may really embrace it. Somebody said, I don't really know. I heard those Pentecostals are strange people. Friend, when it goes back to what the Bible said, what the Bible was experienced, what was happening in those days, this was one of the most beautiful experiences because all the Jews went, whoa, just like he came down on the mountain 1,500 years earlier, just like fire. And smoke, fuego del Espíritu Santo came down. He was on amazing. Just like this, we're having it now. And wait a minute, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave. will live and abide in us. And the whole purpose of that whole experience at Pentecost was for one reason and one reason only. We find it in Acts chapter 1. And I'd like you to read it with me in verse 8. Acts chapter 1 in verse 8. Jesus said that like this. This is Jesus' words. But you will receive, would you say the word with me? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Power. The power of the Holy Spirit is supposed to be living. We're supposed to have power living and abiding in us. I love that I have a beautiful prayer language and I pray in other tongues. But the goal was never tongues. 
So I'm sorry that whatever denomination or background you came from, that, that tongues thing don't make no sense to me. I don't know about that. that. That's neither here nor there. The goal was that you and I would have power. The Spirit of the Lord. Listen, I want to do what the prophets of old did. I want to be what Jesus was. I want to see what Jesus saw. So let me give you the three empowerments that the Holy Spirit really wants to have happen in your life. Coming and living and abiding you, baptizing you in the Holy Spirit. Here's the three empowerments that really are supposed to take place. Number one, that you and I, he'll empower us to live righteously. To live righteously. To live righteously. Now, some of you have had such a hard time. You know, I'm trying to be a Christian, man. I'm trying. To just, it's just so hard to be a Christian. That's right. You keep trying in and of your own strength. You have no power to live righteously in and of your own strength. Listen, they, they had the law. They knew what God expected. And all throughout the Old Testament, they couldn't even do it. They couldn't do it. So God said, I'm going to fix this whole problem. First and foremost, I'm going to cover their sins once and for all by the sacrifice of my son. All they have to do is accept that. And then I'm going to empower them to live like my son Jesus did. To be what my son was. To live righteously. You look at Romans chapter 8, verse 9. It says, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature but by the Spirit. As believers, we're not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. What's supposed to happen is the Spirit of the Lord is supposed to help us and what? Control us, to give us control, to give us control. I can remember times, uh, even being a pastor years ago, and I would sit there, you know, and I'd have this thought, man, go look at some pornography. You could get a little peek real quick. And I would go to click on it, and I would start shaking. I'm like, what? Because the Spirit of the Lord inside of me is like, no, sir, no, sir, I'm going to give you control not to give in to that. I'm going to give you the ability not to go and dive into that mess. People get around Jamie and I all the time. They're like, wow, you're so amazing to be around. It's like, it's like God is in your life. And the reason that is, the difference between us and other people is because I'm not trying to live this out in my own strength. I've surrendered myself to the Holy Spirit. He leads, guides, and directs me. He empowers me to be what I cannot be. He empowers me to do what I cannot do. He empowers me to love where I cannot love. He gives me the power to do that. So I'm not living for myself. I have died. Christ lives in me. The hope of glory. His Spirit is abiding in me and pushing me to good works. He's pushing me to right living. He's controlling the sinful urges of Adam and that haven't been completely crucified yet. This is one of the great empowerments of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah saw it. Isaiah saw it hundreds of years earlier, and he prophesied about it. Isaiah chapter 20, excuse me, chapter 30, verse 21. Isaiah saw it, and look what he said. He said, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. That's exactly what happens. I, I, I just, all of a sudden, I'll just sense the Spirit of the Lord, stay away from that. Ooh, don't talk to that one right there. That one right there ain't up to no good. Ooh, I just get this. It's, it, look, look what he says. He says, and you will turn to the right or to the left. Your ears will hear, hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way. Walk in it. I hear the Spirit of the Lord always tells me things. Hey, do this. Hey, do, try that. Don't do that, boy. Walk therein. Isaiah saw it hundreds of years earlier and prophesied about what was coming to our generation. That it would have the Spirit of the Lord living amongst us, living in us fellowshipping with us. Here's the second empowerment that he wants to give me, and that is to live supernaturally. To live supernaturally. Jesus made this statement, which haunts me in the night. It haunts me. He said, greater works than these, King James, shall ye do. Greater works, Jesus said, greater works than what I did, you will do. Well, hold up, just, I've read the Gospels. He raised the dead, he healed the sick. He told hurricanes to stop, and they did. He, he fed thousands of people with a few loaves and some fish. Greater works than these shall we do. Do you know when Jesus' ministry started, how old was he? Anybody know? 30. How, how many years did it last? Three years. Do you know what happened at 30 at the start of his ministry? He was baptized by John as he came out of the water. Who came and landed upon him? Holy Spirit. Jesus had three years to do all these amazing things. You and I... If we'll allow the Holy Spirit to fill us, baptize us, we will have scores and scores and scores and scores of years. The most exciting part of Christianity is not trying to be good and not be bad. That's miserable. The exciting point is the supernatural. We're supposed to be living in the supernatural. It's supposed to, we are supposed to pray for sick people and they get healed. We're supposed to trust and listen to the Holy Spirit guiding us into these supernatural, amazing experiences. Oh, 
I mean, they're, they're magnificent what God can do. I, I, had, I had a situation like this I felt like I would share with you today. Uh, um, a couple years ago, Jamie and I were first kind of married. We were still living in Louisiana. And there in the Baton Rouge area, there is a, uh, the Mississippi River comes through. And, uh, and so they build levees up alongside the Mississippi River so it won't flood over in. And, and in the Baton Rouge area, they had built this kind of lookout tower, like a little three-story open tower just with some stairs and a platform at the top of it. And, and, uh, and so one night I had taken Jamie out. You know, I was trying to learn how to be romantic in, in newlyweds. And, and so I took her out to, this, uh, to, to, out to eat, and we went by the levee. And, and so I said, let's go up on the tower. We got to it and had a little chain across it, and it's basically closed. And so I stepped over the chain because... And so I took her to the top, and we were looking all out, and I had my arm around her, enjoying the breeze off the river, and it's, you know, it's probably 10, 11 o'clock at night, and just, and, and, and the city's about, to, you know, kind of shutting down, there's not a lot of movement, and just looking at the lights and the skyline of the city, and I noticed all of a sudden somebody kind of jumped over the chain and was coming up the stairs, and as soon as I did, I felt that spirit nudge, I felt the Holy Spirit like, you know, like Spidey sent, danger, danger, you know, I kind of felt it, like, ooh. And, uh, and so I said, hey, and about that time, this guy made it all the way to the top of the stairs. And I'm telling you, I've, I've done enough ministry in my life to know that boy right there was high as a kite. He was amped up. He was like, hey, hey, uh, my car broke down, and uh, I need some money. Y'all got any money? Can you loan me some money? All right, man, I got nothing for you. I put Jamie behind me. He goes, you ain't got nothing? You ain't got nothing? I was like, man, I have nothing, bro. I'm sorry. I don't got no money for you. Uh, but we got, we got to go. He goes, huh, huh, you ain't got nothing? What about that watch right there? Well, how's that watch going to buy you gas? And he goes, you got something. You got something for me. And he reached back and he grabs a knife. And I don't know, like I didn't plan this, and I've never read this in How to Protect Yourself Against a Thief or someone who's going to try to rob you. And I'm sorry if this offends you because I, I do have a prayer language. And uh, I don't know what happened. Next thing I know, I go, yeah, la bashi kate la matne kashe. So he thought, man, this dude just lost his mind and speaking in another language, right? And so he goes, he starts doing like this. And I said, do you know who I am? I'm a son of the king of kings. This is his daughter. How dare you threaten? He's got the knife in his hand. And I'm telling you, I start praying. I'm walking down three flights of stairs right here. He's doing like this. All the way down the flight stairs. He gets to the bottom of it, and, and, and he trips over the little chain, and he falls, and, I st- and my wife is just like, oh, and I'm like, yeah, and then all of a sudden he jumps up, and he just takes off running. And I finish like, whoa. And Jamie looks at me like, you the man. <laughs> now, I wouldn't make a doctrine out of that, like how to defend yourself against a, a, a murderous person. But I want you to know, this power began to surge, and it was supernatural. I didn't create that. I, I wasn't trying to show off anything. I was scared to death is what I was. But greater is he that is in me than the he that was in that world. Here's a, here's a third piece that the empowerment of God is supposed to do for us, and that is to give me the ability to live on a mission. People ask me all the time, so how come your family, your children, you and your wife, man, you'll love God, you'll love each other. What do you think is the key? They'll ask us this in, in, in marriage seminars all the time. And Miss Jamie, her first statement out of her mouth, we live for purpose. We're on a mission as a family. We're on a mission as a couple. See, I don't believe the problem with the United States and our young people is drugs and sex and, and Internet and all that. I believe the problem with our young people and the problem with most criminals is purposelessness. Think they have any purpose? They have a mission. Why not? Why not do drugs? Why not shoot somebody? Why not? I want. I want to feel life because I have no other reason to live. Life is miserable, and the reason that is is because they've never seen or known the mission that God has. We have a corporate mission as Christians, and we read it in Acts chapter one and verse eight. The power of the Holy Spirit will come upon us that we might be His witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So what you and I don't realize sometimes is we're supposed to be missional. That's why this church can't always be enjoyable by some people because they'll come looking for consumerism, Christianity. And although we want to minister to you and we want to help take care of your needs, at the end of the day, we have a mission. We have a mission. It's harvest time to get in the harvest, to win the world, to help hurting people. That's why our mission statement is to relentlessly love Jesus. Because if we, his church... And the hurting people of the world. That's our mission statement. 
Why? Because if we don't, then life will have no meaning. The Holy Spirit gives us a mission to live for. Wake up every day. See, when you have a mission, when you've got the Holy Spirit mission happening inside of you, you wake up every day and you don't see that job as some worthless thing that you got to go to just so you can pay the bills. You recognize, wait a minute, there are people that work alongside of me that are going to die and go to hell, and I have the power of the living God living and abiding in me. So I show up every day saying, is this the harvest moment? Is it right? Is the fruit right? I keep watering. I keep, I keep adding stuff to it. Let's see, is the fruit right? Woo! There it is. Bam! They're ready to get saved. And you and I are on a mission. So no matter what we're in the most worthless place on earth, you can recognize I'm on a mission. I have life. I have a reason. My purpose is on board. So this plane can't go down and kill me until God's ready for me. But I'm on a mission. I live with mission. And that is to be a witness, to be his truth telling to a lost and dying world. No matter where I'm at, whether it's in Walmart, whether it's in the parking lot and somebody's getting in a crash and being mad and cussing and fighting, pulling out guns. Wow, I'm on a mission. God put me here for this moment for such a time as this because the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead dwells in me empower us to live missional to have a reason for our existence do you know how many miserable people there are out there you know how many churches are miserable because they don't know the mission of God they don't live with mission once the disciples experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit it says and loving not their lives until the death they didn't care kill me you can't, God's got a mission. He's healing people. He's, all of a sudden, Peter is healing people. All of a sudden, Paul is raising the dead. Why are these supernatural things happening? Because they're on a mission to do great things for God, to help the lost and the dying, to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Your next door neighbor is part of your mission. Where you work is a part of your mission. This community is a part of your mission. Oh, yeah, let's go do missions overseas too. But this life has mission connected to it. When you're filled with the Spirit and He empowers you, number one, to live righteously. Number two, to live in the supernatural, see supernatural things happen. And then number three, to live missional. <laughs> There's a young lady. Last year, I was teaching at Christ for the Nations, a Bible school up the road. And this young lady walked up to me, a beautiful African-American gal, and she goes, Are you Pastor Adam? I said, Yeah, I am. She goes, uh, I heard you're from Louisiana. I said, I am. She goes, me too. I said, what? I said, where are you from? She said, I'm from Lafayette. I said, I'm from Baton Rouge. And she said, oh, she goes, my birth mom was from Baton Rouge. I was like, really? Birth mom? She goes, yeah, I was adopted. My mom um, was, a, was a kid, and she got pregnant, and, uh, and she was going to kill me. Um, but there was a ministry in Baton Rouge that uh, reached out to her, and she got to live there, and, and, and she carried me full term. And then, and then the, my, 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 fam- my love family, I think she called it, adopted me. I said, really? In Baton Rouge? She goes, yeah. I said, uh, do you remember the name of the place? She goes, I just met my birth mom uh, last year. Uh, Some place called House of Ruth. I started waiting. I was like, uh, I said, did you just say House of Ruth? She said, something like that, like Ruth of House or something like that. I said, sweetheart, our church, Bethany World Prayer Center, had a home for unwed mothers called House of Ruth. I said, and I was there every day loving on those girls. They would be in our youth service every Wednesday night. We would do Friday night, Saturday night prayer meetings there. I'd sit around playing cards with all the pregnant ladies, playing spades and stuff. It was awesome. They were in our youth group. We had a great small group there every, every, every week in the living room. I said, what, what was your mom's name? She told me the name. I went, I said, sweetheart, your mom was pregnant at 12 years old. There was a family member that molested her. I said, sweetheart, I laid hands on her tummy with Miss Jamie standing next to me. And I declared that the child in this womb will serve the Lord all their days and minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. I said, sweetheart, that was you 20 years ago. She starts crying. I start crying. I could have never planned out that wonderful mission. I was just living every day for the purposes of God. Who gave that power? Who did that supernatural thing? He did, flowing through me. Let me tell you something. This life was not meant to be lived outside of his presence. The very fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you, I've been fellowship with the Holy Spirit for years. Well, maybe you need a refresher. Some of you don't really even understand, so you're a little apprehensive. You're more worried about you seeing people fall down and all this kind of stuff. I don't know about all that. All I know is what the Word says, and that He sent His Holy Spirit to live and abide in us, to give us power. That's what Pentecost was. It was just a moment where God marked Israel and said, See this? I'm telling you, 1,500 years ago I did it like this. Look at it again. 
And so they would know this is real. This is the real deal. This is God at work. Would you stand with me all across the room today? As we go to close, I want you to understand something. Being filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't make me better than you. It makes me better than me. Did you get that? Being filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't make you better than someone else. It makes you better than yourself. The power of God flowing and surging through our veins. The Holy Spirit nudging us, teaching us, keeping us, speaking to us. Don't go into that. Stay away from that. Pray for that one right there. Say this to them right there. Don't give in to that. Don't, don't be baited into that argument by your boss who's wounded and is always competing with you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. I tell you, I love you so much as your pastor. I can't carry you up the mountain. I can't carry you over the bad times of life and the difficulties of life. But there's one who can. He was promised to you. He's the gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit living and abiding in you. And I'm sorry if maybe your background had some negative experiences with who he is. But you might want to re-engage and recognize, especially if you keep going back to the same old sin. Especially if you've never seen miracles happen in your family and in your life. Especially if you don't know what you're doing with your life. You're trying to get more education and try to figure out what you're going to do and how you're going to make more money, what house you're going to live in. I don't worry about any of that because I'm missional because the Spirit of the Lord draws me into the things that matter. Keeps me away from the things that don't really matter. I'd like you to do me a favor today. Would you reach over and grab the hand of that person next to you? I'm believing that throughout this series that those of you that have been never baptized in the Holy Spirit that you're going to go to your small group leader and say listen Pastor Adam's been talking about this I'm ready I believe some of you are going to get home tonight next couple days you're going to be sitting in your back bedroom or in your living room you're just going to say Look, Holy Spirit come into my life I want you I, Pastor Adam's telling me about you I want, I want that I'm believing that God is going to transform our church that you're not going to have to be carried but you're going to have power that you're not going to have to always be counseling with someone but you're going to have the great counselor living and abiding in you. That you won't have to go figure out what life is all about, but the one who's already figured out life will be a living and abiding and leading you into the right steps of what life is supposed to be. I wouldn't be a businessman or a businesswoman right now trying to make big decisions without the power of the Holy Spirit nudging me and teaching me and speaking to me. Friend, I'll tell you right now, you and I need the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our life. We need the person of the Holy Spirit living and abiding in us. And so would you take a moment right here for the next 60 seconds and would you pray for the person on either side of you and just say, Lord, Holy Spirit, come to them. Come meet with them. Come, come engage them. Fill them. Baptize them. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that every man and woman in our church will know the presence of the living God. That, the, that they, would, they would be set free from fear, doubt, and unbelief. And that, Lord God, that the men and women of Church on the Hill, Lord God, that they would understand what it is to be led by the Spirit of the Lord, to have the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that came upon Samson, the same Holy Spirit that was there when they crossed the Red Sea, the same Holy Spirit that was there at the creation would begin to live and abide and baptize them, Lord God, with holy fire, Lord God, where there is strength and power to overcome, to walk this thing out. God, I pray for a real encounter with the real God. And I pray, oh God, that over the next five, six, eight days, supernatural things would start happening as they just give themselves and rely, and rely on the moving of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come fill us. Baptize us afresh. Would you just keep your head bowed and let go of the hand of that person next to you? Now today, I would be a terrible leader if I didn't give an opportunity for those of you that aren't Christian, those of you that are away from God, I would be a horrible minister and a terrible lover of humanity if I didn't give you an opportunity to come back to God or to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Maybe as I was speaking today or maybe when we were in worship or something, you felt God tugging at your heart. You sensed something. That's the way God works. Listen, you didn't show up here by accident. God drew you here. You didn't come to church thinking it was going to be a rock concert. You knew good and well that God would be here in our midst. And you know good and well whether or not you have him in your life or whether you've rejected him. And friend, I want to give you an opportunity to make Jesus your Lord and Savior. I want to call you back to him if you've been away from him. Ask yourself this question. If I died today, would I go to heaven? Would God embrace me? Or would he look at me and say, why do you keep pushing me away? Why do you keep pushing me away? Why do you, I keep trying to get your attention. You keep trying to pretend like I'm not there. Friend, don't do that today. Today's your day. The Bible says now is the day of salvation. 
Maybe say, Pastor, that's me. I'm ready. I, I don't want to live like this anymore. I want to be a Christian. I want to live for God. I want God's, I want God's life in my life. I want my life in his life. I want to, I want to come with, I want to come together with God. Believe in your heart. Pastor, what do I do? Well, I, I'll tell you. The Bible says it's real simple. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. He will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What will happen is the moment you confess, the moment you cry out to God and you make him the Lord of your life, that blood of Jesus Christ will go over your house, over your life. And when the death angel comes at that day of judgment, it'll look right past you and say, oh, nope, that one belongs to Jesus. Oh, nope, that one's been covered by the blood of the lamb. You say, oh, well, Pastor, I'm I'm a little worried that I'm going to go back into my old sin. I I don't want to make this decision half-heartedly. Listen, I understand that. And this is a serious decision. But friend, can I tell you something? He'll give you power to overcome all that old sin. He'll give you power. You, you keep worrying about how you're going to do it. You need to stop worrying about how, you need, how you're going to do it. Just receive. Everything that Jesus needed you to have, he paid for 2,000 years ago. You can't be good enough. He was the only one good enough to die on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're away from God, if you're not a Christian, and you want to make Jesus your Lord today, I'd like to pray with you. I don't, I'm not going to call you forward. I don't want to point you out. But you need to have a determination in your heart. Yes, it's time. I'm ready for change. I'm ready to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I'm ready, I'm ready to give my life over to God. With no one looking around, if that's you, if that's how you feel, no one's looking. It's just me, you, and heaven. Lift your hand right where you're at and say, that's me, Pastor. It's time. I'm ready to serve God. God bless you. Thank you, sir. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Thank you, bro. Anybody else? Just a couple of seconds. Come on, don't belabor the point. Yes or no? Do you want God or not? Are you away from God or not? And if you are, are you ready to come home? Anyone else? Give you a couple more seconds. You put it back down. Thank you. A couple more seconds. Thank you for your honesty. Oh, my God, I love you so much. God's going to transform your life in this holy moment. All the hands are down. God bless you. Thanks, bro. Anybody else? Make sure I see it. Amen. You can put your hands down. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Nothing's magical about the prayer. What's supernatural is you're here, God's here, and he's tugging at your heart, and you're saying yes. That's what's supernatural. I'm going to lead you in a prayer, a prayer of repentance. In fact, I'd like everyone in the audience to pray it out loud so you're not by yourself. And I, but I, those who lifted their hand, I want you to mean it from the depth of who you are. Let's say it like this. Say, Jesus, a little bit better. Jesus, today I surrender. My life, my wants, my desires, I give them all over. And today I decide Jesus is my Lord. Forgive me of my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on a cross for me. And here and now, I ask you, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Write my name in your book of life. I promise to serve you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. Keep your head bowed for just a moment. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for every man and woman who lifted their hand. Even the ones who didn't get their hand up, but they prayed that with all sincerity. I pray in this holy moment, they would sense and know that you are there. That their life is different. That they are a son or daughter of the Most High God. They may be disobedient at times. In the days to come, they may make mistakes, but they're still your son and daughter. And Father, we just thank you right now for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for a baptismal experience. Father, we thank you right now that, Lord God, when the night begins to cry out to them and the old sinfulness begins to draw them back, that they'll feel and sense the power of God flowing through them. Father, we pray right now, Lord God, that every one of these who confessed you as Lord and Savior today, for the first time, are returning home, that, Lord God, they would sense the peace of God, the peace that surpasses all understanding. makes no sense. The peace that you got it all under control, that life has meaning and reason, and that you're going to work it all out because we're yours. Father, we call that as so in the mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people shouted, amen.